COVID-19 is a record breaker as a global health emergency. Just two months after China told the WHO it had a problem, tens of thousands of people have been infected. We now know there are confirmed cases in 35 countries. New epidemic outbreaks of the coronavirus pop up as if from nowhere in some cases. Iran emerging has a regional breeding ground. From there, we've seen the pathogen spreading out to Iraq and Afghanistan, Kuwait, Bahrain, Oman, even as far as Lebanon. Some 100,000 people in northern Italy right now are essentially imprisoned inside their own villages and cities. We don't know how it got here, we don't know how fast it's spreading, and we don't know exactly how far it's spread yet. It's a game-changer for scientists around the world. Vaccinologist Helen Pertussis-Harris calls it an unprecedented triumph in human research collaboration. It means that a vaccine should be ready by the end of April. Some vaccines have taken 20 years to develop. Some vaccines still elude us. Others have been faster, but we're moving into a new paradigm, a new world in this space now, which, which means if we can do this... What else can you do? Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, how health experts around the world are working together like never before in the rush to find the right drugs and vaccines. In room 3056 of the University of Auckland's brand new School of Population Health Building, Helen Petousis-Harris has just presented slides on the latest on what she calls the evolving COVID-19 pandemic to her colleagues. Already, patients are being given existing drugs, she says. New drugs are being trialled. Dozens of companies and groups are working on a vaccine. Traditional academic research has been thrown out the window. COVID-19 has caused a knowledge explosion. And I went along to see where we're at in dealing with this deadly disease. And here you go on to say COVID-2019 is not the apocalypse. Uh, yes, you should care, and how the traditional approaches to solutions have been thrown out the window. Mm, what mm. does that mean? I guess it's the global collaboration that we're seeing. Is that, uh, is that yeah. sort of a, the yeah. first time? Researchers are a little bit precious about, about their life's work. You know, we keep it pretty close, and you don't want somebody to beat you to it. No. And here, that's all gone out the window. Everybody is all hands to deck. What can we do, and how can we divert our resources, and how can we we make these things happen and it's sort of like a live sharing. You were saying you were reading a paper on the bus on the way home mm, yesterday mm. and that, that researchers are releasing papers before they're yeah. even published? Yeah, it's called preprint. So before they've been properly peer-reviewed, they're being made available, the information's being made available so that others may use it. Why is that? Make things happen really fast. And you can see how fast they're happening. It's yeah. incredible. And you're saying that what's really driving this, or the biggest concern, is what is happening in the fragile communities? Or countries who've got uh, very weak health systems and their ability to uh, identify cases in the first place will be really limited. And then those cases that are severe are not going to get the same sort of level of health care that we can offer. So the rush is to get on top of this before it reaches one of these fragile countries. Yeah, because also their ability to contain it and to control it. The restrictions we've had in place since the 2nd of February, uh, that has significantly contributed to keeping New Zealand free of a COVID-19 case to date. 
during what was a rapidly evolving and uncertain international situation. This is a slide where you're actually talking about what is happening now. And as you said at the beginning, this information is, is almost outdated by lunchtime. It evolves so fast and the numbers keep changing and any declaration of a pandemic will change. It will change the way that you stop trying to contain it right at that point. Oh, do you? Yeah. That's what happens when, as yeah, soon as it's yeah. declared a pandemic. So, so then you're moving to another phase. We have a national supply of critical clinical equipment that is ready to be deployed as needed, specifically the equipment that may be in short supply in a pandemic. This includes, for instance, masks and antivirals. We have 9 million what they call P2 masks and 9 million general purpose surgical masks, so it's ready to be used in the case of a pandemic. What you want to do is you're trying to limit the impact on the health systems. You don't want everybody getting sick at once because we can't cope. So trying to then limit what that impact is and trying to delay it, delay things as much as possible. That is what's happening at the moment? It's what's ha- so containing it is buying us all some time. It's brought us time to understand the virus and how it spreads, who it affects the most and how it can best be contained. It's given our health sector also uh, the ability uh, for at the point at which we do have a case to use appropriately international intelligence and to put in place plans for protecting our Pacific partners given the gateway role New Zealand has for many Pacific Island countries. And there's always the hope that uh, it may go away. Like, for example, SARS went away. And what are the chances that this will? I mean, there's a lot of talk about, well, summer is coming for the Northern Hemisphere. That should be the turning point. Who knows? We just don't know. So many unknown. Completely unknown, yeah. You can't even base it on what happened with SARS. Because it's a coronavirus as well. It's different. It's far more infectious. What, we've got 80,000 confirmed infections so far, compared to 8,000. This has all happened in two months. That was over the entire SARS life. That's right. The total number of SARS cases was 8,000 people. COVID-19, 10 times that in just two months. And that's just the official figure. Was SARS the last declared pandemic? No. Or was that not? Swine de- flu. Swine flu, mm. which was... 2019, yeah. OK. Yeah. And how does this compare with what's the response... Then this is so much faster, much faster, because it is so much more contagious. We we don't know. We still actually don't know just how contagious it is, because what we're doing is um, we're basing all of this on what's happening primarily in China and in Wuhan, and we accept that they'll be undercounting the cases, the people who the number of people who are infectious, mm. which could be hundreds of thousands of people. And that all becomes more evident down the track. <laughs> it's modelling. People were actually um, developing models based on the information available so far, which keeps suggesting that we've got a lot more cases. But they're mild, so not of consequence. They're not mm. being counted. The people are not. Some people are probably not sick at all. The cases that we're aware of probably most of them will be showing some symptoms. Mm. It depends who they're testing and how many people they can test. And you can't, you don't have the resources or the manpower to test everybody. So the first case was December the 1st. On December the 31st, China advised the WHO, we have a problem. 
and then just days later China shared the sequence. How significant was that? I mean, was that a, a quick response? Mm. Because there seems to be a lot I know, of... and I think that, that really shocks me. People are saying this was all delayed, this took time. Uh, hello? It took four weeks, just over four weeks, from the first case to telling the WHO we have a problem. And then a few days later, they found the pathogen, they sequenced it, and then they made it publicly available. And to that the world. is super phenomenal. Speedy. Phenomenal. By sharing the sequence, what does that mean? If you have the genetic code, you can start taking pieces of, of the coronavirus genome and putting it into your little vectors, for mm-hmm. example, and testing these vectors to see if they can create an immune response that's actually going to stop the virus. That's uh, an example of you know, very stylized of, of what's been done, for example, for some of the Ebola vaccines, uh, which have, have now shown to be demonstrated to be both pretty safe and effective. The progress on therapies, more than 80 clinical trials are now underway. Yeah, right. That's probably like that's probably out of date today too. How significant is that? I, I don't know. It blows you know, how your mind. That... To get a clinical trial up and going is not for the faint-hearted. Of course, you've got all these steps that have to occur. You've got um, protocol, but also ethical considerations. Ethics committees have to approve these things. And then, of course, you've got to find your patients, carry out your protocol, and then uh, you've got to analyse your data. Because I think, you know, when you've got someone that's very, very ill and you think you've got something that you could try, you've got nothing to lose, have you? No. Mm. And so up there you're talking about HIV medications, Mm. trial Mm. results. Does that mean that some HIV medications have been tried Mm. on patients? Yeah. Some uh, clinicians had tried some existing HIV meds uh, and the patients had survived, so you don't know if they survived just by chance or whether it was the HIV meds. So that's really significant In terms of vaccines, 2.8 billion US dollars to get a vaccine to market. It's not a straightforward process. Everybody says, oh, when are we going to get that vaccine? And the same people will be saying, oh, make sure it's safe. Oh, and make sure it works. Right. (laughs) And you can't licence a vaccine that has not been proven to be acceptably safe and also it's got to work. So you've got to prove those things normally. Under these conditions, there are ways to to fast track. And when you've got a situation like this, you can uh, probably roll your vaccine out in a way that it is um, almost in trial conditions to get that data faster. So it's not like you're going to skip anything important, but everything will be fast tracked. You know, the the FDA aren't going to sit on licence applications (laughs) <laughs> they're not going to sit on somebody's desk for month and months and months and months on, <laughs> under these circumstances. They, they'll be readying themselves. Who's working on all of this? Is it Big Pharma? Well, no, not so much. In this list here, there's just one Big Pharma company out of these 37 companies and academic groups, and that's Johnson & Johnson. They won't be the only one involved. Others will come on board, but they need to make a profit. They're going to also have to protect their intellectual property as well. So if this coronavirus suddenly disappeared and they'd spent millions and millions of dollars on something, it's going to sit on the shelf. They're not going to make that back. So the risk is huge. And it's happened to them before where they've been burned, developed. We had Ebola vaccine sitting on on the shelf for years. It's not an attractive model if you're 
needing to a, to explain that to your to your shareholders. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so yeah, who, who is who's funding these other companies then? Well, some are academic groups. Mm. So some will be doing it within their own capacity. They might have just diverted their resources to something else. And some are receiving support from CEPI. Now tell me about CEPI, because this is quite fascinating, the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. They are leveraging funding from entities such as Wellcome Foundation, uh, the Gates Foundation, etc. Bill Gates has helped to fight AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. Well, today at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, he announced that his project called CEPI, or the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, has $460 million. They're really interested in pathogens that affect low-income countries, but also Disease X. We Disease knew would come. Is... Disease X that we, we knew was coming, Yeah. but we don't know what it was going to be. And Disease X is COVID-19. That's our our disease X. So this has been set up for this kind of situation? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it gives us a chance of uh, being able to respond in time when the next epidemic hits. Some vaccines still elude us. Others have been faster, but we're moving into um, a new paradigm, a new world in this space now, which, which means if we can do this, what else can you do if you really want to? What about you? What about in New Zealand, people like you? Are New Zealand institutions, your colleagues, are you involved in any research in the next steps? There has been some funding made available. A $3 million research fund uh, into issues around the current COVID-19 outbreak. And we anticipate any research funded through this fund will not just guide our planning and preparation for this outbreak, but also our future um, planning and response to these sorts of events. The $3 million fund we're making available could go towards a broad range of research, including helping with vaccine development for COVID-19, analysing how New Zealanders have accessed the public health information on offer, looking at different models... We would like to do some research in this space, particularly around uh, ways that we can gather data as it happens and use that data to inform us, like, can we predict where the disease is going, where it's going to crop up, can we model it? And also getting information to people is quite a challenge. And I think we've seen this before, where if you think about all the members in, of our diverse communities need information, how do we get it to them yeah. in a way that is friendly from people that they trust? You can't just have one channel... It's quite complex. Have and you got any thoughts about how you get the information out there? I do. We absolutely need to be in the social media space because yeah. that's how a lot of people get their news and their information. This is Amio, a chatbot. Yeah, so, um, you, you know, do you use Facebook Messenger? It's just like you're having a little chat. Yes, with on, a friend. On Facebook Messenger, yeah, yeah. Ex except uh, it's this little fella here. Mm -hmm. And uh, he answers beautifully with information that's derived from the best scientific sources in language that is easy to understand. And if you're a little bit confused about what you want to know, you know you wanted to know something, but you don't know how to ask the question, there are preset topics and you can push the button and he'll start telling you about it. And if you want to drill down a bit more, he'll give you more information. And this has been developed by 
New Zealand yep. people. These, these doctors here, they saw this need with measles. Two doctors decided to join the fight to stop the measles epidemic by designing and operating a world-first measles chatbot on Facebook Messenger. Dr Kanan Almoa and Dr Sanjeev Krishna. And she went off like a rocket. And they did it on their own, you know, their own time, their own back. And then when measles became problematic in the Pacific, the Pacific were using it as well. Our two big things were tackling the misinformation and the second, giving everyone this information available. Um, and through social media, we've been able to reach so many pe- more people because you know, Facebook is so readily available and social media reaches so far. Uh, so we're reaching well, in, well into the thousands now yeah. um, and the bot itself has had, I think as of this morning, we'll be crossing over into the early 30,000 interactions and that's um, not only just in New Zealand but that's extending abroad throughout the Pacific. So obviously now with the events happening in Samoa, we're getting a lot of heavy usage there. That's an example of some of the technology that we should be, be using and flooding the world with with good information because um, what the challenge is and one of this is one of the big concerns of the World Health Organization is the misinfodemic and the misinformation that's flying around and one of the ways to fight that is to to have really good information from places that and people that people trust yeah and people don't all trust the same people so it has to be really diverse so whose responsibility is that to give it I think the the leadership resides with the ministry, the leadership for uh, for these communications. This is actually um, best practice, and this is what's recommended also from the WHO and how you actually um, develop how you communicate with people. And they need to be pulling in an, um, not just the people closest to the topic, but also you need to be engaging wider members of the community. For example, your religious leaders for some communities, other influencers, people who are key influencers, so that you can give them the information and have everybody singing from the same choir book. Should it be happening now or is it too soon to be? It should be. It should have happened at the first sniff of a problem. Even in New Zealand, Absolutely where we haven't even proactive. had a case. Absolutely, because, because it's, it, you know, look, if nothing happens, great, we can all go home. But it's very likely something will. But also, we're, part, we're interconnected, where we're not, in, well, we are an island, but we're not an island. You mm. know, it's a global community, and people are receiving information from all over the planet. The Prime Minister, in her post-cab press conference, said we are ready. We are ready for a mm-hmm. pandemic. Yeah, well, there's a pandemic plan. Mm. I would imagine that's being executed. You know, it's been developed over the last number of years. My comments are around communication strategy, which mm. I haven't seen evidence of, and we, we didn't have one during our measles epidemic. So, Does that I mean we haven't learned? I would seem we, we haven't learned because we're not using these. Uh, we're not getting... I don't think we're getting to, to the people who... Um, All of our community. I don't think we're getting to all of our community. As you heard there, with the knowledge explosion has come a misinfodemic. Yes, that is a word. I'm off now down the corridor to talk to Professor Chris Bullen about how he wants to tackle that. His project is about to reach millions of people stuck at home in China. You're developing something specific for people in China who are in isolation? Yeah, predominantly focused on people in China because mobile phone use is phenomenally widespread in China and they use particular platforms 
in the same way that you use Facebook or Google or whatever here, there are programs like WeChat and people buy and sell using you know, Alibaba and these products are available here as well, of course. Mm. But our focus is really on the people you know, stuck, shut up in their apartment block on the 50th floor somewhere in Wuhan or in Guangzhou or somewhere who have been there for two or three weeks and they don't know what to do next. They're going crazy, um, hearing all sorts of information. So is there an opportunity here? We think there is to um, support them in staying well, both in terms of risk of acquiring coronavirus infection, but also just mentally well, well-being, social functioning, family well-being, um, good advice about healthcare seeking, diet, activity, boredom. Mm. You know, what um, exactly is that? Well, what we're thinking about is something specific that's um, more like a, a bit of a game. Oh yeah. And so as people play the game, they learn. Uh, the correct information about how to manage their health. Mm-hmm. And um, along the way, you get accurate information, get distracted from the immediate surroundings, and we'll throw a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy in there for mental health promotion. And that can all be done with various elements of gamification. So how far away is it from actually... Yeah, so at the moment, um, we're just in negotiation uh, with a major player in China about this, but we're quietly confident that something will cross the line soon. Obviously, time's of the essence to get something out there that's robust and current mm. because of the changing information needs. And it's the beauty of these products, like a pamphlet where you have to print 100,000, send them out, and then a week later the news changes and you've got to withdraw them from circulation and replace them. Whereas with uh, digital tools, of course, you can update things on a hourly basis if yeah. necessary. It's just one of a number of ideas that... We've got in the pipeline for dealing with this particular epidemic, and there are learnings from you know our recent experience with measles. Um, that uh, how do you reach people in the Pacific best these days? It's probably through mobile, you know, digital communication mm. to get fast, timely information in different languages, different cultural settings. It's definitely the way to go. So what, will it be weeks, do you think? Yeah, we're talking about weeks rather than months. Yeah. Months oh, seems like a very long time in the history of this epidemic, yeah. which is quite remarkable. That we've got so far globally, but there's still such a long way to go <clears throat> with understanding how this disease works in yeah. populations yeah. and what the right levers to pull are to, to try and minimise risk. That's The Detail today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The Detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across The Detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Helen Petusis harris and Chris Bullen. Mā te wā.